but then they're put in these roles that, okay, your role is to make sure that uh, we do the NPS with uh, certain customers once every quarter, and you come back and do a presentation on that, and you also go to these 12 meetings. Okay, so then Annie gets beaten down, and she comes here, and she thrives. She's, she's just doing fantastic. Hey, what's up? Welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Have a great interview for you today with Dave Mastovich. He is the founder and CEO of Mass Solutions, a marketing firm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He has a storied career where he transitioned out of corporate life into running his own business. He's been doing that now for over a decade and shared some insights, not only in what it takes to get his business off the ground, how he's had to innovate and push the ticket with his clients and his own business, but also offered some really valuable insights to me as someone who is just in the early stages of getting my company, Piper Creative, off the ground. It was a really nice perspective to share and uh, hopefully the blossoming of a new friendship. I think that you're really going to enjoy it. I think that you're going to learn a little bit of business history and some timeless values that are going to be applicable no matter what industry that you're in. So please enjoy this conversation with Dave Mastovich. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Dave, I want to start off for folks, um, before we kind of get into the backstory and build all the context, just to explain what Mass Solutions is right now. You've been Uh in business for more than 15 years. Uh Um, Just give them a little bit of that background of the current State of the Union. Thank you. We like to say somewhat tongue-in-cheek that we are the world's only no-bullshit marketing firm. And what that means is I'm a marketing purist, and one of my passions of life has been that I was fortunate to experience real marketing at a young age through a couple of means. And over time, I saw that companies weren't doing real marketing. And I thought it was because I had budgets. A couple of times I had budgets and was able to really do real marketing. And I realized that it wasn't because I would go out and talk to some people with really small companies and see that if you know real marketing, you can do real marketing. But the vast majority of marketing isn't real marketing. And so Mass Solutions was built around that premise. It was built around the premise that I believe that anyone in the world should be able to get real marketing. And we will work with anybody of any size, of any industry, B2B or B2C, to enable them to do real marketing. And so can you can we hone in on that definition of real marketing? Because I think that's going to be a big uh, search for some people. So I put this definition together a long time ago after experimenting with some things and I combined some things that I learned. So one of the first things that happened to me, I tell this story quite a bit, is I chose where I was going to school based on uh, sports, based on basketball. And I was meandering about after a couple of semesters, enjoying the social life. I was also a DJ. So I was enjoying the social life, the DJing, the freedom and the basketball. And I would go to classes and not really get into anything. And I went into this one class and everything was talking about what was resonating with me or what I was already doing. They were talking about consumer behavior and they were talking about segmentation. And so at that time, this is uh, hard for anyone from anything beyond Gen X. So uh, millennials uh, would say like, what are you talking about? But to go and find out about, I looked at the book, saw the author of the book, and I wanted to find out about this author. And that took some doing back then. Had to go use a card catalog. (laughs) 
in the library, but you had to go and dig to try to find anything out about people. And it turns out that this person, Philip Kotler, actually wrote the book on marketing. He wrote the first Principles of Marketing book. And from that day forth, I had already been doing DJing and already been doing other things as a teenager uh, that were applying marketing. But then I dug deep into this Philip Codler guy and he pushed for marketing to be uh, a, a major. And then he pushed for it to be a part of MBA programs. And I saw when I interviewed coming out of school and I did some turnarounds very early on my career. So uh, Philip Codler actually is considered the father of marketing. But if I were to ask most people in our space who the father of marketing is, they, they wouldn't have a clue. And uh, that's part of the problem is that marketing, uh, marketing doesn't have in its own discipline, we as marketers don't have that history. We don't know who the father of marketing is. We don't understand the pure definition of marketing. We don't apply that marketing. We allow leaders to not give us a seat at the table. So I see young people, I see middle in their career people who aren't getting the seat at the table. Some don't deserve it because of how they presented marketing. Others want to have a seat at the table and do real marketing, but they don't because the leaders don't understand real marketing. And real marketing is first clearly defining who you want to reach and influence, then finding out what they want, think and feel through marketing intel, developing and tweaking what you have because rarely will it match up what the intel and segmentation tell you. So you can give them that product or service when and where they want it, at a price they're willing to pay, and then tell them about it again and again. But the vast majority of people in this space and the vast majority of CEOs and CFOs and COOs think it's tell them about it again and again and again. They think that's marketing. And that's this tiny little smidgen at the end. If you've done real marketing and you've clearly defined that target audience and done the real drill down and segmented and sliced and diced, and then you went out and did real marketing intel, it doesn't have to be quantitative, it can be qualitative research to find out what they think and feel and want. Then come back and battle the operations people so they change the product or service. And I have the scars to prove it from battling operations people my entire career to come back and say, no, this isn't what the customer wants. And you change that product so you can give it to them when and where they want it at a price they're willing to pay, then you can tell them about it again and again. That's real marketing. So is that part of what you get hired to do here with Mass Solutions is to come in and basically be the change maker or be the person who stirs the pot when a company's uh, culture or dynamic or structure has become stale, has become misaligned? Is that part of what your, your job is? Sometimes. That's a great question. In an ideal world, that would happen a lot. But often what happens is someone says to me, and this is typically how it happens, we, we grew organically for the past 14 years, mostly. As a marketing firm that doesn't really market, we didn't have to. What would happen is people would come to me, they would hear of me or hear me speak. And then as the team grew, they also get built relationships. So someone would say, I have a problem. And it's X. And they don't even know what they need. So then they bring us in to diagnose that problem and understand their customer opportunity, to help them understand their customer opportunity. And to understand your customer opportunity, you need to really look at your own data and really drill down who those existing customers are. The first thing we show people is who they thought their best customers were, 
isn't often the case. Who they think their markets are that they should be marketing to isn't often exactly what they thought. Then you go out and you find out from those people you've defined what they're thinking and feeling. And you'll hear these stories from customers telling you, this isn't why I bought them. I bought them for that reason. So we start doing that and it becomes they need our solutions. We offer recommendations and solutions that they need implemented. Some, many, we say, implement this yourself, which makes us different. We come in and say, hey, you need seven things, and two of them you need to do yourself right now. Third one, you can do most of yourself. We'll give you some ideas. Fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh, you need to have to hire someone. But number six, you probably shouldn't hire us, hire this firm. But we think we could do four, five, and seven. And they might say, no, they don't have any obligation. They might say, yes. But then when we get into a situation, it often is helping the marketing department change so they become less tactical and more strategic because that's where the bullshit marketing comes from is most marketers across the country are tactical. And when you're tactical marketing, you're in trouble because the leader is not going to understand what you do. The, the CEO and CFO they're going to really struggle with when you're tactical and they're going to go, wow, she did a nice job with the golf outing. We'll keep her. Do I really want to keep my job based on how good the golf outing went? What if it rained? Yeah. So you've gone through this evolution with it being 14, 15 years old and the problem of getting this data about the end consumer, understanding these segmentations, these demographics, these preferences, that has gone under a massive revolution in this yes. period. So paint a little bit of a picture for me, and then we'll start to the actual founding of the company, but paint a little picture for me of what resources you were using in the mid-2000s uh -huh. to get those insights versus the tools that you're using now uh -huh. and how that evolution's uh -huh. looked. Well, there's a couple of major changes. The, the first is uh, customer satisfaction surveys used to be relevant uh, and it actually could drive some decision-making in the 80s and 90s because there wasn't all kinds of different ways to get real-time information. There weren't online reviews. There weren't all these quick ways to get information. So something as simple as that is I still have clients who say, well, our customer surveys show this. And I say, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But you have to supplement that and go way beyond a survey. And then the way to supplement that 20 years ago included a lot of focus groups a lot of times, uh, random intercept interviews, and those are still okay. I mean, I still think you can use a focus group to some degree from time to time. Random intercepts and interviews are still good, but you can do way more of the things online and still get some both quantitative and qualitative uh, results. So that's one piece. Another piece is how you segment. The segmentation is so much stronger now because we're able to track so much more. But there's an interesting thing that comes into play, Aaron, and it's that uh, depending on your worldview and upbringing, regardless of your natural cognitive behaviors, regardless of how your mind is, your generation impacts how you think to a degree. And so people that came up having access to the data all the time like you, you're going to have to fight that bias. People that came out without the data have to fight their bias of branding is soft and it's okay. We can we can do a commercial with Michael Jackson and his hair caught on fire, the Pepsi commercial everyone remembers from 1988 or whatever. So depending on what your generational view is, you have to fight your own bias because it is both an art and a science. Someone that's in Generation X and the boomers are biased towards the art because they never had the science. Someone in the millennial generation and every generation after that is biased in that they have always had the science, so they sometimes lose the art. And that's the tug of war in our industry. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a big thing with Piper that we're we're trying to be oriented around that creative. It doesn't mean it's not data informed, right. but pushing against that trend where it's not just math. It's not just, well, this conversion rate to this ratio to this ratio, and yes. that's the entire story. Um, so let's get back, speaking of story, to 2002, started mm-hmm. Math Solutions. Paint a picture for us. I know you're UPMC beforehand, but paint a picture for us of where you were mm-hmm. and what the perhaps catalyst or drive was to set off on mm-hmm. your own? Well, I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit without being a pure entrepreneur. And what that means is when I was a teenager, I had small businesses and I always understood the gig economy. I was really ahead of the curve on the gig economy. I always believed that that could work. And I always believed that full-time equivalents were a big thing that people, leaders stuck their chest out. We have 2,300 full-time equivalent employees, FTEs. And I used to say, this is insane. Who cares if we own them as a full-time employee or if they're a uh, subcontractor? And I was using subcontractors 20 years ago when people weren't doing that. People thought that was a bad thing. So I always believed that, I believed in the gig economy and I believed that we could uh, work with people that weren't necessarily full-time and being a part of it. So as I worked through a lot of these jobs, I had an entrepreneurial spirit, but not a pure entrepreneur. And what I mean by that is a pure entrepreneur can jump in and try, and they tend to be a serial entrepreneur. They might succeed at three businesses and fail at nine. I'm more of an entrepreneur with a corporate bent. So I came up and did my first ever job was a turnaround of two radio stations. That's pretty entrepreneurial. But then I got recruited by bigger companies because of the success of that. And then I went the corporate way. And once you get in the corporate way, you go, oh, okay, what's the what's the metrics here? What's the KPIs here? Oh, I'm a VP of this size company. I want to be a VP of that size company. Uh, I'm doing this. I'm, I have this much resources. I want that much resources. So I went through all of that. And when I was leaving UPMC, I saw this major shift to where education was coming behind healthcare, probably 10 to 15 years behind where healthcare was and still is from a marketing standpoint. So I knew that education was going to apply all the things we had applied for the last 10 to 15 years. When I first got into healthcare, it was a, marketing was a dirty word. Marketing was a dirty word. I was brought into companies to do turnarounds. And people go, oh, they brought in this big big city slicker guy. And I'd go, what are you talking about? This big MBA guy. And I'd go like, you know, I'm you're crazy. But then they would say, well, uh, we're going to call you uh, the director of marketing. And the one place would have their senior leadership team was the CEO, four VPs and me. And they would actually say, well, the VPs and Dave meet on Thursday. And at, they thought they were kind of insulting me, but I loved it. I was like, great, you're branding me. Yeah, everyone knows even, my name now. <laughs> even though it's because of your own weirdness about the word marketing. So yeah. when that's when I got into healthcare. So then I come into education, it was the same thing. I come walking in as a chief communications officer type position. I don't know that they even called it the, the right things at the time. But I was brought in and the deans of each of the 10 schools were kind of like, what's this? Some of them were wary. Some of them were excited. But I saw that that was going to be the shift. So I took this Duquesne job. But when I was taking that job, I actually met with the president and um, we were, were, were talking about this position. And, and I told him, I said, hey, I have this thing that I started that um, I don't even have a name for it yet, but it's my side thing. And it's what I want to do long term. And I said, um, it's a, it's a firm. And I go, um, how do you feel about that? And the president, the president of the university said, we'd love for you to do that. We think that's awesome. We'd like you to work about 40 hours a week. And I go, I go, time out. 
40 hours a week. I said, I'm working 65 hours a week at UPMC. And I go, so you're telling me if I work 40 hours a week for you, you're going to be happy? And you don't care if I put 15 hours? I'll still have less hours of work done. 15 hours in this thing on the side. And that's when I started building my solutions while I was in that position. So I was on the side working with a couple of clients who sought me out. The first ever client is still a client today. They wanted me to be their partner. And I said, I don't want to do that for the rest of my life. I think I want to do this business for the rest of my life. And they said, well, well, you can serve in the chief marketing officer role. We don't have one and we're a small startup. You can be in that role and grow with us as a consultant. And I said, okay. And when, when I need anything else, I've got my team of designers, video people, writers, and so forth. And that's how Mass Solutions started. So that's, that was the impetus to get rolling. And we just kept growing and growing. And so as we move into modern times, my perception, and this could be a fish in water not really knowing the truth, is marketing has become less of a dirty term, but there's still a trend of people just struggling to keep up because it is changing so rapidly. Yes. The platforms, where the attention is, the tools, the data insights, a lot of what your role is, is to be this not only implementer, but teacher of like, okay, this is how this works. This is why this is better. This is why this is more effective. What are those conversations looking like now in terms of where people are just uh, still having the wool over their eyes, whether Mm -hmm. it's your clients or just the, the market in general? There's a couple of things. There's a big segment that you'd be surprised at where marketing still is in their minds. And I would say mid market companies to small businesses, uh, don't have an understanding of it, especially B2B. And we work a lot in the B2B space. When you're at a big UPMC or Highmark or Dick's Sporting Goods or someone huge, uh, specifically it also does B2C, they'll have all kinds of layers of marketing. So they understand the need for it. So we'll put that over in the parking lot and come back to it. But that's the tiniest amount of companies in the world. The vast majority of business today, the vast majority of employees today are in companies of 100 employees or less. And so those companies still surprisingly don't have an understanding of marketing. And the leaders of those companies, when I go to do the No Bullshit Marketing Workshop, I do it for CEOs, COOs, and CFOs across the country in companies that anywhere from 50 to a million a year in annual sales to 100 million in annual sales, sometimes it's 25 million in annual sales. But they're people with 75 employees, 200 employees, and they're that mid-market to small business. They just, and they're business to business, they just don't have an understanding of marketing. So with them, a lot of it is trying to help them overcome their misperception because they hired a person who was doing tactical marketing and that was wonderful for a year or two or three or four. And now they've hit to where like, oh, all I'm doing is getting the same tactics done, regurgitated. That's what marketing is. I don't like marketing. Marketing's a pain point for me. Can you give a couple examples of those tactics, like what that would, what that would mean just for people less familiar? Sure. So companies, this is, first of all, people are bullshitters uh, for the most part when they talk about marketing. So if you said to someone at a company, do they drill down their target markets? They'll, they'll speak an untruth and say that they do. And they really don't. So the majority of companies out there don't do real segmentation. So that's the first thing. So you have a person who's coming in not doing segmentation and not doing intel and research. So now they're doing creative for creative's sake. And then they're more tactical-minded and um, don't have a strategic bent. 
So then they miss the subtleties of strategic messaging and strategic marketing. And they continue to do the website a certain way. They might do some pay-per-click. They might do some direct emails. They might do the promotional events. It's a big thing that happens is marketing ends up doing the golf outing, the annual uh, meeting of all employees, the Christmas event, a promotional event. And then they become a dumping ground where someone says, well, we're having our Kennywood day. We need you to put this together. We need you to get a flyer. We need to send an email out. And now you're taking this. And so if someone is already leaning tactical and they don't have a strategic marketing bent, they'll keep doing that, but then they start getting over capacity. So now they miss details and they're, they're judged on things like how good the apparel looks, how, how many different versions of the sweater and polo shirt there are. And if that's what you're going to get evaluated on, you're not really doing marketing. And then when push comes to shove, the budgets will get cut when that's the precise time when you need to invest more in marketing. But I actually get it. If I were that CEO, I wouldn't invest more in tactical marketing, but they don't even know that they're not getting strategic marketing. They just lump it under marketing and they say, I'm not spending any more on marketing. We're, we're, we're struggling. We're hitting a downtime. They, that stuff's not working. And it's because it's mostly tactical. And that's it. More companies than you think and bigger sizes than you think. And then the flip side, parking lot side that I put in the parking lot, the big companies, they have a whole other issue that's tied to inefficiencies because coming from a big corporate side, I know that probably cautiously estimating 25 to 50% of people's times at corporate America are in meetings. I'm probably low. I'm probably estimating low. If 25 to 50% of your time is going from meeting to meeting, and I'm probably estimating low, you're not going to have time to be strategic. You're putting out fires in the crisis of the day. So then even there, the marketers get lumped in this box of fix the crisis of the day. What are they doing over there? I don't even know what's going on. They have 17 people. What are they doing? Again, it comes because of mostly a tactical mindset. So when I hear stuff like this, or just in my own perception of these folks are doing storytelling and marketing and branding well, they're doing okay and they're doing it poorly. I walk away from hearing these types of things very optimistic because it means there's an opportunity. It means that if it, the, the bar for above average performance in this realm is actually lower than a lot of people perceive, would you agree with yes, that? Yes, I completely agree. And so that whether that's an entrepreneur or someone who's trying to be a change maker inside mm-hmm. an organization, like you mentioned before, like that, that should give you a high degree of optimism that mm-hmm. you can go and outperform a lot of the rest of the competition. Agreed. And my hope, the reason I have hope is you met Sophie and you met Annie, two of our young uh, performers who are really solid members of the team. They both are coming out of college, working a year or two years, and wanting to do all this stuff they've been taught by the Philip Kotlers of the world, who he's 80, but he just did his 30th book and he did Marketing 4.0. And But obviously, I'm joking. There's the young Philip Kotler is the professor across the country, whoever that is. And they're coming out excited to do all this stuff. You two are excited to do this. You're doing this really cool thing that the first time I met you, I thought that is a really great idea. Love the concept because it's going to just, it has so many ways to set the tone for you for the rest of your career. You're going to be talking like me 20 
20 years from now about today. And you're going to say, what I did when I first started Piper was this. And you're going to grow and grow and grow. Well, the Sophies and Annies of the world want to do something close to real marketing. They can't possibly know all of the facets of it because when you come out of college, you don't know everything about the experience. But then they're put in these roles that, okay, your role is to make sure that uh, we do the NPS with uh, certain customers once every quarter and you come back and do a presentation on that. And you also go to these 12 meetings. Okay, so then Annie gets beaten down and she comes here and she thrives. She's she's just doing fantastic. We have warts here too. There's many things I do. I'm a human being, so I have many weaknesses. But my point is we turn people loose. My daddy, who you met, came here right out of school, and he has been able to do his thing. What he sees, he comes to me and says, I want to try this. I want this to happen. Well, that's what other good marketing departments in corporate are doing and other good marketing firms are doing. But when you start doing creative for creative sake and you become more tactical, that's when you hurt the whole cause. So when you're here doing this creative thing and you're going to talk about it and you're going to apply segmentation, you're going to apply intel, you're helping the whole cause so that we as marketers aren't lumped in this box of either don't know what they really do. Oh yeah, they do the nice, they make stuff look nice. Do we really want that? Did we go to school and passionately learn this to make something look nice? That's creative for creative sake. So I'm, I'm talking about this for anyone that's in our space. And yes, I, that, that's a long-ass answer. I apologize. <laughs> no, it's good. But the hope is because I see people like Sophie and Annie, bam, they come in and they're, they're getting it that quick. So my follow-up question to that is, and, and this is a very selfish question, is you have someone really talented enter your organization and there's a friction between like like we can understand why the corporation does that yes they have such a wide range of tasks that uh-huh. need to be done uh-huh. and they need to dole out all the responsibilities so that they know that all the boxes get checked so to speak yes. and to some degree you have a similar thing you have client work you have these list of yes. responsibilities that need to get done how do you balance well this is what has to get done with here's creative freedom, whether it's like the Google one day a week, you're working on your own projects. Like how do you manage that as a leader? Well, that's a great point because I want to touch on the first part of your point. I mentioned to you guys probably before we were on the air, I mentioned a guy by the name of Mark Marmo, who was a guest on my show and he, uh, he grew, he and his team grew a Marcellus shell company, a snubbing company when the rest of the shell industry was down and dipped for two years and he has 10 X growth. Well, what Mark does is he leads and so when, when we talk to Mark and we say, hey, this is, uh, this is a, a, some BS marketing, you could get better. He took to understanding stuff like LinkedIn. He's, a, he's, a, he's awesome on LinkedIn just by doing some basic things. He understands how getting quoted in, in industry publications is huge. So he's quoted next to the people from console. So you see the CEO of Consul's quote, then the follow quote is Mark Marmos. So I don't want to act like th- that, oh, everybody's dumb. That's not what I'm saying at all. A lot of times we just don't know. So when, when if you're open-minded as a leader and you learn some things and you can apply it, Chris Brobman is another example. He has applied a lot more things to his messaging because people forget that internal messaging is huge. So that's the first part of your question. You were saying, you were saying that we understand why it happens. Agree. I totally am not just being punitive here. I understood why it happened because it happened to me on the corporate side. And it takes a lot of work. So now you ask, how do we do it here? Well, the biggest thing about the company is when I started the company, uh, the first employee is Mike Gaddy. I'll never forget sending out a Panera. And um, that's why this stuff you're doing reminds me a little bit. Yours is much more sophisticated. But I had this like uh, wireless printer and I would just throw it in my car and I'd meet Mike anywhere and I'd have paper in the printer. And we're in Panera and I had the printer and the two laptops. And that was our, that was our office like 
14 years ago, and I people thought we were from Mars. Like, they think you're from Mars, but they think we're really <laughs> farther than Mars. Like, back then, people would go like, what's going on here? And I remember I would buy stuff at Panera because I felt bad because I was yeah. there for four hours. But I said to Mike in the first meeting that we're going to take this approach. Work is going to be around life. And so... It wasn't that way. When I would leave those big positions to go do something with family, you know, no one said anything, but you, you were okay. Yep. Uh, okay. Well, so, said I. so what I said to him was, okay, I have three sons. Uh, I'm going to go to whatever. So there's an elementary, uh, I tell this one example and it's said so many times it probably makes me look stupid, but it's just one simple example. Like at Halloween in elementary, we all dressed up, right? And with my kids' generation, like when I was there, the parents didn't come to it. But like last 20 years, parents probably came to that. So I went to all that for all three of my sons. Now, I don't know that they remember that, but I just remember I'd go there and it was around 11, 30, 12 o'clock and I'd be there and then I'd go back to work. And I said to Mike, I said, that's how we're going to build this company is that we're going to have balance, but you're going to want to do your work later. I don't, I'm not saying to you, Mike, you have to work at nine because you went to your kid's thing at three. No, if he doesn't work at nine, he doesn't work at nine. But if we have shown them that their ideas matter, if we have praised them and not taken their ideas, because I came up through the ranks when ideas were stolen, and they still are now, but like ideas were just flat out stolen by whoever the boss was. And I always said, I'm not going to do that. So Bonita, uh, who works here, she had an idea for one of our clients. I said to the client, Bonita, come up with this tremendous idea for you. Let me tell you what it is. You know, And so... If, if you know you're supported and you know your ideas aren't stolen, you know that you can debate, you can engage with me. I'm going to be shitty sometimes because I'm this thing called a human. So my tone's going to get shitty sometimes. I'm animated. So my face is going to get scrunched up and look mean sometimes. You can either take that and say, I, I think you're a bad person. Or you can say, no, most of the time he's not like that. So obviously he has issues too. He's a human being fighting through stuff up here. And am I going to cut him some slack or no? Do I only want it my way? Do I only want it to everything's good for me? Everything you have to work around me, but I'm never going to work around you. No, we say we're going to work around each other. And I am not the best me every day. I try to be, but I'm not. He's not the best Mike every day. And he's not the best Annie every day. So there has to be a team that supports each other and understands that we're human and we're all going to have these needs. And there's, but work is going to be around life as opposed to life being around work. And that's what your generation is pushing and will happen for the entire country, but that was a novel concept 15 years ago and still is not completely, not by any means, the majority of jobs. <laughs> Far from it. We had a, a interview about a year back, uh, episode 269 and 270 with Brent Bishore, and he basically had another way of saying that is humans are messy. We want to we bring in the minimally messy people yes. into our organization because that's who cohabitates the best, yes. but we have to recognize that there is no saint, there is no angel. Nope. Everyone has their messiness to them, and acknowledging that is part of the core of a healthy culture. So it is. I dig that. It is, and and you know what's you just have to like admit that you know like I know <laughs> you know I know what I did 20 years ago, and um, I did a lot of successful things. But there's times I was like shit, you know why did I blurt that or why did I you know there was a toxic culture. I was a part of a toxic culture in my dream job. I had my greatest job you could imagine. I had plan for this job. I knew it was going to happen. I land this amazing dream job and I wasn't a fit because the culture, in my opinion, was toxic. In my opinion, it was toxic. It's just one person's opinion. Well, not one person's because a lot of people left and felt that way, but I'm in the dream job and the culture wasn't a fit. Well, I was probably the worst me, even though we had huge success in the public eye. 
I wrestled with how people were treated. I wrestled with how I was treated. I didn't treat people as well as I would have liked to because your guard's down because you're getting your ass beat. Yeah. <laughs> so I know what can happen whenever I'm off my game. And that's why I tell people, I said, I need you guys to keep me in rhythm. If you get me off rhythm, then I'm not the best me. And then I'm going to drag you down because I'm going to do something that you're worried about. And I'm, I'm the boss of the company. So like, I don't like the, I don't ever call the boss car, but I'm, I know they're human. They think I don't want to get the boss. Right. <laughs> you know, I don't want to get Dave down. So my whole goal is like, I try to explain some of my styles that others might find peculiar or as idiosyncrasies, but they're my style. And that's what we have to try to work around. And I work around theirs. Like, you know, I know that my, I interrupted Mike too much, you know, um, we do this thing called predictive index. It's hugely powerful. It's, um, the, I think it's the only survey that is EEOC compliant because it's so scientific that if you do a job pattern based on this and then you hire someone who had that pattern, that covers you. If that, regardless of what that person was, uh, looked like, felt like, talked like, what their age, anything. And after we did all of ours, it said that Mike interruptions really hurt Mike more than other things. But Mike, on the other hand, can sustain work for very long periods. Mike can be a machine. He can work for very long periods on similar tasks, doesn't need a lot of variety or change. He might not leave the office for three hours other than to go to the bathroom and could pound out things. But it said, but you shouldn't interrupt him. And now I'm an excitable sort, as you've seen. <laughs> so when we first started the company, I would pop over, Mike, rah, 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 rah. and all I was doing was making him less productive, but he's a respectful team player. So he would go, great, Dave. And I was dragging him down. So now we've, uh, we batch things more. I try to lock yourself in I your office. I try to lock myself <laughs> in my office. That's, I can tame, I actually will write down, talk with Mike or I'll say, Mike, we'll go to lunch Tuesday. So I can write everything from Monday and the first part of Tuesday down and yeah. they go over it all at once. So it doesn't I mean, mean I don't still interrupt them because I'm human, but yeah. at least we're cognizant of each other. And they know that my, like when I'm about to do a podcast or when I'm about to do a workshop, I need quiet time to think. I, I need time to reflect. Whereas a lot of people like to talk through things. I like to reflect and think. This has been chocked full of insights. I really think that there's multiple valuable actual takeaways for listeners. Um, but we're going to give them one more before that. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on sure. the, the podcast. And I want to give links or give you the chance to offer digital coordinates where people can connect with yes. you and learn more mm -hmm. about all the stuff you're working on. Well, the first thing to connect with me to see any of our content is massolutions.biz slash blog. And that gets you to the blog and podcast page, B-I-Z. Uh, but if anyone wants to reach out directly, I have no problem giving my email out. I don't care. Dave at massolutions.biz. I will respond to people. Um, it might be at three in the morning, but... I will respond to people if you want to ask me a question or ask for advice or something like that. I also, my preferred social media that I use is LinkedIn, and I'm just David and Mastovich on LinkedIn, but um, I just like that one because it's a little bit more business-oriented, so that's where I, I spend most of my time. Um, so that, that answers that. The specific feedback that I would give someone is uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, a large phrase that isn't as specific, but I'll try to bring some specificity to it. It's all about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. So getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, what does that mean? That means that when you look at what you avoid, so the specific action item is this, the next time you're about to avoid something, you're probably rationalizing 
the avoidance because it's something that makes you uncomfortable. So if you're someone that doesn't like to network and there's a networking event and you say, well, I got to get home because X is happening. I want to beat traffic. I want to cut the grass. I have to go there. I got to get to the grocery store. I got my buddy. I'm going to watch the Steelers game, whatever, whatever you're to, to really address this specifically. Each action, each person's action item is the next time that they catch themselves putting something off. It's most likely because that made them uncomfortable and you've got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. So if it's someone out there that's not created any content yet on their own and they're working for a company, you're rationalizing why you didn't just start writing your first blog. You're rationalizing why you didn't write down a simple seven step plan to start a podcast and create something because who cares? You'll laugh at the first episode later. If you're someone that doesn't like to network, you're rationalizing why you're not going to the network. So Next time, get comfortable with being uncomfortable by, by fighting that off, fighting that emotion off and just saying, okay, why am I really feeling this? Let me try this and go and set some modest goals. I'm going to write a 300-word blog. I'm going to do a two-minute audio file that's the start of my podcast. I'm going to go to said networking event and try to talk to three people. So your specific action item is to get comfortable with being uncomfortable by fighting that emotion of anything that you think you might want to do, but you find rationalization to not do. I dig it. And often those types of uh, tasks, I love that point that you're making of setting like a small win oriented goal. You don't have to write a 300 page book the first time you set out to create content. You can create something, a very small win, and it's not oriented around how many people see it or the impact necessarily. It's just the accomplishment of it itself that starts to build the momentum. I always tell people, uh, anyone that's young that's uh, starting out and hasn't done any content, I say, go on your phone, hit that audio recorder thing and talk. Pay the buck a minute to get someone to transcribe that. Mm -hmm. And for $35, you know, you'll get, (laughs) you'll get your first blog. It'll be a thousand words or 800 words or whatever. And yeah, you just talked because most people are comfortable with that. Most people are saying like, well, the reason that I like fantasy football is, and how does that tie to marketing? It's this. And then they get that transcribed and yeah, you're gonna have to edit a little bit, but that person that doesn't feel comfortable writing, now I already got the writing almost done. Yeah. So it's manageable. Take those steps towards it. But you wouldn't have done what you've done. She wouldn't have done what she's done at an early age. I wouldn't have done the stuff that I've done if I didn't do stuff that other people didn't want to do and that I wasn't comfortable with. And I tell you what, it's liberating. So do it. Beautiful. Uh, well, once again, Dave, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Sure. I appreciate you sharing your time with us today. Thank you. It's a great time. We just went deep with Dave Mestovich. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Hope you enjoyed that. Hope that you're subscribed. Hope that you have checked out our enormous back catalog of episodes. We have a ton of good ones. In particular, uh, episode 306 with Brian Seleski of Argo AI is one that a lot of people have enjoyed and learned a lot about self-driving cars from. Coming down the pipe, actually, our next episode does not feature a guest. It's going to be the audio from a talk that I gave at the University of Duquesne a couple weeks ago to David Brower's professional sales class. Dave brought me in and allowed me to share my two cents on how Piper works and more importantly, how LinkedIn can work 
for entrepreneurs, for job seekers, for college students to increase and improve your outcomes. Uh, It is working really well for us right now, and I'm trying to share the good word. Sometimes people uh, wait to share this type of stuff until all the low-hanging fruit has already been taken. I'm going the opposite direction. I'm trying to make sure as many people know about this as possible because it is just a really special moment for that platform and for what you can do there. Uh, So please check it out. Uh, Make sure you subscribe so you can listen and check out this little sneak preview of our next episode. So I'm assuming that in your position, you're more um, quality over quantity then? Uh, Because I have like, I've met people with such different views on how to use LinkedIn and what it's for. And like, I know kids who won't even like be connected with like people in our business fraternity. He's like, I'm only for perfect, like higher level professionals just want to connect with. Whereas I'm kind of more like, I want to connect with everyone in my circle and like their stuff and comment on their stuff and encourage and kind of stuff like that. That's very smart. I think it's a blending of the two. Like you can over index on quality and I could have every um, SEO shop in India connect with me because that's like one of the groups that tend to spam on that platform. Like you don't need to go that far into quantity, but what someone like I'm only interested in high value connections, what they're missing is, well, that's in the present. Like right now we see the high, it's much, it's very easy to see the hierarchy right now. Like we could go look up who are the CEOs in Pittsburgh, who are the C-suite executives in Pittsburgh, who are the people without jobs in Pittsburgh, but that's not going to be stationary. Some of these people are going to retire, die, get fired. Some of these people going to rise like phoenixes and actually being connected to them and being kind to them when they were lower actually gives you more street cred because everyone wants the attention of Bill Demchak at PNC. Everyone wants his attention. Why compete for that when everyone else is competing for that attention? Why not compete for the badass student who's still getting their MBA at Duquesne who one day, you can just tell, you can tell when someone's high potential, why not connect with them now, establish a relationship, and then in 12 years, you're gonna be able to get the meeting you want. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.